Good afternoon and welcome to At Yale Live. I'm Eric Gershon. Today we talk about a life in science with a man who's lived it to the fullest. James E. Rothman, professor and chair of the Yale School of Medicine's Department of Cell Biology and a winner of the 2013 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. As always, we'll take some of your questions. Please submit them via Twitter to at Yale or by email to socialmedia at yale.edu. Jim Rothman, thanks for being with us. Pleasure, Eric. So on the day that you won uh, the Nobel Prize, you taught all your scheduled classes. Tell, tell us a little bit about why that was important. Well, you know, um, teaching is an important obligation. And uh, I think I was trying to send a message to the students and also my colleagues that, uh, you know, we uh, sh should keep our focus on the most substantial things. Teaching is a very substantial thing. Research is a substantial thing. And, uh, you know, it was wonderful to have received an award like this, but it's in recognition, we hope, of substantial things. So let's remember the substantial things. Tell us a little bit about uh, the, the Nobel ceremony and the experience and all the hoopla surrounding that. Oh, no, that's a really big question because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, I, I w it's an experience I would recommend to anybody. <laughs> Uh, you know, but to be serious, it's, uh, it, it's uh, like stepping into another world, and uh, it's quite, a, quite an unreal experience. The Swedish, uh, one of the things you learn is that um, the Nobel Prize for the Swedish people has a significance above and beyond by far uh, what it does internationally. For them, it's almost like a national celebration. It comes at the time of the year when uh, when the, when, the, when the, there is the least light in a, in a country that is in Scandinavia and is dark in the winter. And uh, so it's made into a festival of light. Uh, and it's become a very important part of the Swedish brand uh, mm. and their brand equity, if you want to think about it in economic terms uh, and political terms. So it's, it, it, there's the level of celebration is really quite extraordinary. Was there an opportunity to mingle with uh, laureates in other disciplines, uh, or were you mainly with your fellow scientists? And uh, well, both, actually. Yeah. And so there are quite a number of all the official events involved uh, all of the Nobel laureates, except for the Nobel Peace Prize, which is awarded uh, mm -hmm. in Oslo. Mm -hmm. All of the other ones are awarded in, in Stockholm. And so you spend actually quite a bit of time getting to know uh, some interesting new folks and their families. and. Uh, uh, you know, and actually some of the children became friendly, and I'm told that my three-year-old granddaughter was quite friendly with Eugene Fama's uh, three-year-old granddaughter, and so, you know, there are relationships yet to come. Well, that's uh, an amusing uh, anecdote that I think we both understand, but Eugene Fama won the, shared the Nobel Prize in uh, the Economic Sciences with Bob Schuller, that's right. who was on the faculty here at Yale that's also. Right. Had, had you met Bob before? Or? Well, actually, the first time I met Bob was right in the studio. I mean, Yale is a, is a... Here? Yeah. I mean, Yale is a big place. Yeah. And uh, we're in different faculties, and I've only been here for five years. Yeah. But I have to say that, uh, that Bob and I became quite friendly uh, and uh, continue to be friendly, mm -hmm. and uh, as do our families. Yep. And so uh, out of this will come uh, a very good, you know, uh, and fun uh, relationship. We actually continue to send each other little notes about how's it going, uh, and uh, sharing uh, some, a few hints about how to survive uh, as a Nobel laureate. Bob was telling us that he had to, and he was joking, but he declared email bankruptcy after he won uh, the Nobel Prize because he was so inundated with email. 
congratulatory uh, mm -hmm. people asking him to do things, so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, and he felt that he should respond in some way to each of them, but he couldn't possibly. I don't know if you had a similar sort of experience. Well, I, I would never trust an economist who claims <laughs> he's bankrupt. <laughs> uh, of course, you know, you get a lot of email. Uh, yeah. I, I, I tried my very best to answer all of the email yeah. that, that, uh, that came in the early days. But, uh, yeah, there are, are a lot of requests. Some of them are, are kind of amusing, but <laughs> <laughs> and I won't, won't reiterate them here. But for the most part... Uh, what happens is that uh, life gets back m more towards uh, normal, yeah. which is a good thing. Let's talk about science a little bit. Yeah. On, the, uh, on the day that you won the prize, um, mm -hmm. you gave um, a very eloquent layman's description of the body of work yeah. that uh, led to the prize. Could you reprise that again for our audience? Uh, I can try. Yeah. I can try. Um, yeah. So the... the uh, the particular piece of work, I mean, we all, all scientists uh, have a broader, broad range of things that they've done, but I think the particular aspect of our work that was, uh, that the Nobel Committee focused on uh, has to do with cell-to-cell -cell communication in the body, and it, and it really relates to uh, how cells organize themselves within each cell and how the cells are organized uh, and maintain a sort of synchrony of behavior and in life, okay? So that sounds very general in a new way it is, but to try to make it a little bit more particular, uh, for example, all the cells in our liver, just to pick up part of the body, uh, the, each one has to, you know, metabolize glucose properly, otherwise you have diabetes, mm -hmm. but they also have to communicate with each other so that they all behave in a similar way. Now those cells behave differently than the cells in your skin or in the, the many types of cells in your brain, and so in order to maintain the communication between the cells in, a, in, a, in an organ or between the organs in a body so mm -hmm. that the entire body functions as, a, as, a, you know, as we know ourselves to function, as an intact entity, um, there are molecules that are released by cells that, that actually provide for the language. Mm -hmm. And a cell, uh, a liver cell, will secrete molecules that go into the blood and affect the behavior of other cells in the body, even... And, 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 uh, and even within the cell, uh, there is a high degree of organization of the processes in the cell. We call it compartmental organization in the field of cell biology. Mm -hmm. And these various compartments also need to communicate with each other. And this is all done by a process of uh, underlying all of this is a process called vesicle trafficking, which is what the Nobel Prize mm -hmm. recognized. And, uh, and really what it is is that inside... Um, each of our cells, there are many tens of thousands of little uh, vesicles. They're like cells within the cell. They're very, very tiny. Uh, and they're, they have the shape of bubbles. They're little spherical, sort of bubble-like particles. And each bubble sequesters within it a packet of, 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 uh, of, uh, of, of, of proteins and other molecules. Mm -hmm. And depending on the nature of the bubble, the bubble can release its content to the outside of the cell so that that content gets released and then uh, signals cells that are nearby, or maybe the content in other cases gets into the blood and signals to an organ at a great distance. Or maybe sometimes the, 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 uh, the bubble or the vesicle, uh, is it, rather than targeting to be released from the cell, targets some part within the cell and therefore delivers its cargo there and passes a signal in that respect. So in that, there's an underlying framework of what's called membrane fusion. That's the technical term for how a, a vesicle or a bubble merges with its target to deliver the cargo, and it gets very technical mm -hmm. and arcane. But, under, but the beauty of it is that there's an underlying very 
sort of simple uh, biophysical principle that accounts for this enormous diversity of physiology uh, that allows us to function as an, as an integrated whole. And when you have imbalances in these various processes, you get uh, diseases, uh, you know, like type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. uh, there are imbalances in neurotransmitters in most uh, common psychiatric disorders, probably in neurodegenerative disorders. Uh, and there's a long list of, of uh, unfortunately, very common diseases in which these pathways are, are altered. So I think the combination of the sort of uh, the very basic principle that's involved and the kind of generality is what, uh, and the impact on understanding human disease is probably what the Nobel Committee was trying to recognize in our work and that of my colleagues, uh, Randy Sheckman and Thomas Sudhoff. I recall uh, from October <coughs> that uh, you were asked, you know, was there a eureka moment uh, for you, a single one? I imagine mm. perhaps there were many, but mm. if I remember correctly, you said, well, that's not really how science works. Um, mm. Talk to us a little bit about um, the nature of scientific discovery. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I'd say not a bad analogy would be playing baseball, okay? So, uh, you know, if you're, even if you're an above average hitter, uh, you got to go to bat a lot, okay? And so if you, so you, you, you know, you have to, you have to be swinging, and so you have to pay attention, and so you have to do that. But there's another thing that you don't normally think about uh, with baseball, which is that imagine the batter isn't inside the stadium. He can swing all day, uh, and, uh, and, and nothing will happen, right? So you got to be, actually, you got to be in the right place, meaning in the stadium. You got to be trying pretty hard. Okay, now, now, so the, you know, Thomas Edison uh, used to say that, uh, you know, inventorship is 99% perspiration, 1% mm -hmm. inspiration. It's a very famous mm -hmm. kind of, uh, one of one of his more famous quotes. And uh, that's probably true to some extent for, for scientific discovery. So the, the perspiration is swinging away every day in the lab, in the baseball, uh, in the baseball field, mm -hmm. in, the, in the stadium. But then how do you know that you're in the stadium, okay? How do you know that you're in that place, okay? That actually takes a lot of judgment and skill, intuition, and uh, it's not 100% clear what that comes, where that yeah. comes from, but that, that's the piece that uh, can come in a eureka moment. Oh, you know, I really should be doing more of this than that. Maybe I should be looking at this rather than that. And it may take a year, it may take 10 or 20 years to exercise that thought, and you probably have to go to bat a lot of times. You'll make a few mistakes. You're certainly gonna be, gonna, gonna be uh, thrown out quite a bit, okay? Mm -hmm. Usually you get to walk instead of getting a home run. But, uh, but if you keep at it long enough, and what probably distinguishes the, the best scientists from uh, those who uh, are not as uh, fortunate or perhaps don't have as much skill, is the ability to be more often in the baseball parks mm. when they're swinging rather than swinging it uh, you know, into the thin air. So I was, I was gonna ask this later in the conversation, but it, I think it's appropriate now. What, was, what, was, what has been your strategy for picking risks? Because a decision, right, to focus on an entire lab mm -hmm. and the resources of that lab yeah. uh, for a year, perhaps longer, yeah. um, is necessary, but it's a risk. Mm -hmm. so how, how have you approached that historically? Yeah, well, Eric, that's really, I, th these are really good questions. I think one of the, the most fundamental things is being willing to take a risk. Mm. Okay? Now, there are th most people actually, even scientists, are not ultimately prepared to take a risk. Okay? And these days in science, maybe a subject we can touch on again later, 
it's, uh, it's actually massively more difficult mm -hmm. to take an appropriate risk. Um, there's a kind of judgment that comes into it, right? So uh, you have to feel, uh, well, I'll tell you when I was starting out, okay? Sure. Uh, um, uh, I was really fortunate. My first uh, uh, job as a young professor was uh, uh, at Stanford University in the Department of Biochemistry. And the great figure uh, at the time at Stanford, and indeed one of the greatest biochemists uh, of the last century, was a man named Arthur Kornberg. Okay. So, in fact, I went to Stanford uh, because I was I, I was going to be able to have to, my to lab teach, there. Right? But to teach, right? To do and research, research and yeah. teaching is yeah. a part of it. Okay. So, uh, and Arthur had uh, received the Nobel Prize in the late 1950s for discovering uh, how the cro how chromosomes are copied in cell division, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, an, an early version of that. And um, at the time, what he did was ex just extremely remarkable. The biochemistry he did, no one else thought, uh, could have imagined that it mm -hmm. would have worked at the time. So I said, Arthur, how did you decide? Just the question that you asked yeah. me. And he said, well, Jim, something like this. Yeah. You know, I thought, I thought I'd try to do something that nobody else thought could be done, you know, uh, but which I thought could be done, and that was really worth the trouble. Now, there's a lot of, that's an easy formula. Sure. To lay out, it's not actually an easy formula to, to carry out. Yeah. To carry out, yeah. okay. Uh, and there's probably some luck in it, but yeah. you know, if you're self-critical and you wake up every day and you ask yourself, I "Is this the most? Am I doing the most important thing that I could do?" Uh, and uh, and is it is it really unique enough? Then you will make discoveries, and that's the power of the scientific mm. method. I'm going to take a, a question from a viewer. This one comes in uh, by email from uh, Karen Rassico, who asks. What is the most critical advice you give to your students slash postdocs as they move into their first independent positions? Ah, okay. Um, well, Karen, um, you know, that's... Um, hmm? Please go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Karen, that's a really interesting question. Um, you'll have to ask my students and postdocs to find out if I'm telling you the truth, because sometimes I don't always remember it right. But, uh, but you know, my feeling is that... Uh, that uh, that you um, you need to keep working in the lab yourself. What I what I and I tell this uh, all the time to uh, maybe more importantly when uh, when we when we have a new assistant professor at Yale and they come and ask for my advice mm -hmm. the way I did Arthur's. Yeah, uh, I I went to Arthur Kornberg. I, what I say is, look, you know, um, the best person in your lab is you. And, and as a matter of fact, you're the only person in your lab. So your best asset is you. Work in the lab. Keep your own keep your focus on working in the lab, and even as your laboratory grows, uh, make sure that you yourself work with your own hands. Mm. And I followed that recipe for the, for the first ten years of my career, and, and a great many of the experiments that uh, that uh, turned out to be important, uh, I didn't do them all myself, but some of them I did myself, mm -hmm. and the ones that I didn't do myself uh, entirely, uh, I did some piece of. So mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, there's a kind of intellectual. Uh, investment that you have through through your own activity, and so that that my that's actually my single most important piece of advice. And the second one is what er, what you Eric touched <laughs> on, which is take a risk. Yeah. And what I tell the assistant professors are, look, you know, you're coming here and to a great place, Yale University. There are other great places, but <clears throat> you have the resources now for a couple of years to get started and to do something original, and uh, you know you should do it. And, uh, and if you take too conservative approach, you may succeed in the sense that you survive, mm -hmm. in the sense of Darwin's finch. But, you know, are you, did you go into science to become Darwin's finch and to find a niche? 
I certainly hope not, because if you did, you know, please find another job. <laughs> okay? Let me take another question. This one uh, by email from Janet Lyons. And uh, this is uh, also a broad question. Uh, she asks, what, what areas offer the greatest opportunity for basic research today? Uh, and what, what areas offer the, the greatest opportunity for tech transfer? Um, and hmm. I imagine different scientists would have different responses, but I'm curious to hear yours. Boy, that's really tough. Um, if I, you know, uh, this is, I think um, uh, that this might be another version of the question, what would you do if you were starting out again, mm. okay? And so I, it's one that I'd like to uh, address. Um, the first thing I would say, uh, is it Lion? Uh, Janet. Yeah, Janet, Janet Lyons, sorry, yeah. Janet. Uh, the first thing I would say, Janet, is, uh, is don't ever listen to somebody like me when you ask a question <laughs> like that, okay? And I mean that in absolute seriousness because uh, as an older scientist uh, who has uh, matured and been well-recognized and so on, I'm the least likely to succeed if I were to start all over again. So my judgment is to be immediately suspect. Nevertheless, you ask the question. So uh, in basic science, I think that absolutely the most open area is the brain. Mm. Um, but not necessarily in the way the brain is commonly approached. Uh, the common approaches to the brain more and more anatomy-driven, as they always have been. You know, there's President Obama's uh, project to, you know, measure all the connections in the brain and, and, and work out all the anatomy and so on. Uh, there is uh, sort of artificial intelligence approaches to the brain. There are very cellular and molecular approaches to the brain. They're all very good. But I think they kind of uh, miss the point uh, at some level of asking some simple questions about the brain. What, 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 what I find amazing about the brain is that all brains have fundamentally the same anatomy of the cortex. They have six layers. Uh, the, I, I tend to think of the brain as a repeat structure of with, with a common cellular wiring, and every portion of the cortex can be used, it appears, to do any job. It's just a matter of what its input and output are. Well, that's easy to say. What is the underlying principle that explains that circuit? Now, there are people who are trying to do that, but there isn't, in my opinion, anywhere near enough focus on that question. So mm. whatever it is, I think the, the understanding of what, what, what allows mind to, uh, to emerge from matter is the single biggest question mm. of our time. I'm a little skeptical as to whether in our lifetimes we'll understand it, but I'm not skeptical that in the long run we will. Now, technology transfer. Um, Which maybe we should define for viewers. This is, it's essentially the creation of technologies and companies uh, that make or those technologies that comes out of university research. Is that a fair description? Yeah. yeah, that's a fair description. I'd like to redefine the question though slightly. Uh, the, your, the first question re clearly revolved around basic science, but yeah. let, let me just say, let's say, what could emerge from engineering? Mm -hmm. that, uh, because engineering is a, uh, you typically, Engineering is the use of scientific principles for new purposes as distinct from the discovery of new scientific principles. And engineering is an extraordinarily vital area. Mm. And the area that I know much, much more about is uh, biomedically related mm -hmm. engineering. And I am impressed uh, by, the, uh, by the potential for the interface of machine and body. Uh, you know, I think that we're learning, to, as we learn more about the brain, for example, and other parts of the body as we develop more materials on the nanoscale, and we develop uh, the ability to uh, manufacture on the nanoscale interfaces between body and, uh, and inorganic matter, uh, we will uh, begin to see uh, a merger of, I don't mean to sound like a science fiction guy because I don't regard this as science fiction, we'll begin to see 
more of a kind of a gradual coming together of machine and man, first in limited ways. It's going to take off first, I believe, in the commercial market with on-body sensors, uh, which will come out of uh, health enthusiasts and the need for home health and, and re health care reform, which is going to drive stuff out of clinics and more towards the home and, and less uh, sophisticated interrogation by, let's say, uh, by uh, experts rather than doctors. Mm -hmm. There's going to be, a wh I think, a whole series of events that are going to provide the commercial driver that, 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 that essentially focuses invention where there's a need. Mm. And so I, I think that's, if you want to call it tech transfer, you could call it that. I don't know if it's going to come out of the universities or whether it'll come out of the startup companies mm -hmm. or some combination of the two, or maybe it won't even come from, uh, from, uh, from the U.S. I don't know where it's going to come from, but the world 50 years from now, uh, I think, is going to be uh, really different in that regard. Fascinating. Another question, this one uh, via Facebook from Peter Cohen, and this is a slightly more technical question, but I'm sure you'll be able yeah. to handle it. Do you think that a greater understanding of path mapping in 4D could be useful in the sciences? Um, I'm not sure what we mean by, I don't know if we have a yeah. chance to feed back to the questioners, no, no. but, um, but if um, path mapping in 4D, okay, no, I'm going to interpret that. Okay. I'm hoping I get this right. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm going to interpret that to mean the fourth dimension is being time. So ordinarily when we talk about 4D in most si yeah. situations, we mean three dimensions of space and one of time. So if that's the case, um, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think we need to understand certainly physiology, you know, in the time domain. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and another, uh, in my field, uh, you know, I've been speaking up until now about most of the things I don't know about, which is something I'm asked to do more and more <laughs> these days, and that's another health warning. But uh, in the field of cell biology and cell physiology, uh, you know, with we have new imaging tools that uh, are really uh, astonishing now. Right. And the ability to observe the uh, biochemical and physiological pathways even within the cell at unprecedented, re uh, unprecedented resolution and, uh, and simultaneously in real time is beginning to give us just the beginnings of an understanding of how a cell functions as a computer. Wow. Okay? Because I, I know that people don't normally think about it this way, mm. but, but something that you might think about is uh, that, <coughs> you know, there, uh, in electronics, there's something called an analog digital converter, okay? And it takes an analog signal and it converts it into a digital all or none outcome. Now, we, we, I think we understand that computers can do that, mm -hmm. but most people don't appreciate that cells also do that, you know, and, as do mm -hmm. organisms, right? So, uh, for example, a cell, uh, every, every moment of its life is making a decision. Do I continue as I am or do I decide to divide? and become two. That's an all or no decision. You're absolutely committed to divide when you divide. Or perhaps you decide to move around rather than stay where you are. Okay? And when that goes wrong, you have a metastasis and a cancer. Okay? Physiologically, though, you need it for healing a wound to bring in new cells into a damaged area. Um, maybe the cell is damaged because it's for one or another reason, and it decides to commit suicide as a kind of altruistic gesture for the cells in the, in the community uh, around it. Okay? Now, all of these are binary decisions, but they're not made based on somebody throwing a binary switch. The cell makes up its own mind autonomously, and the environment contains many signals. Now, you remember I talked to you about signals that mm -hmm. are released from the cell for communication. Mm -hmm. These are the very signals that I'm talking about. They have to also be perceived by a cell. And, and when, you have, when you're surrounded by an analog universe of chemicals, you can have a higher or lower concentration of a signaling molecule or another one. That's an analog signal. 
And yet, that, that, pat that, that kind of uh, collage of signals needs to be interpreted to come up with an all or none outcome. That's analog to digital conversion. That's a computation that the cells are doing. Each cell does it all the time. We actually don't have the foggiest idea how that works. And understanding what I believe the questioner meant by mm -hmm. 4D is probably very important in doing that. And by the way, I w I'm guessing that that type of computation is not so totally different than what the brain does at a multicellular level. It's interesting to think of a single cell as a computer. Uh, a couple questions back. Uh, I think we were discussing the question, uh, and you said that there were another way to think about it was what might you have done mm -hmm. in uh, science mm. um, instead of what you pursued. If I'm not mistaken, you, uh, as an undergraduate, started with math and physics. That's right. And then uh, found your way to biology. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that a little bit. Oh. Um, yeah, so uh, I, um, I made the mistake when I was at Yale. As an undergraduate. Uh, as an undergraduate. Yeah to take a biology course, and it just ruined my whole life, you know, because I became a biologist. I'm kidding, of course. Uh, I was, I, I had intended to, uh, to be a theoretical physicist uh, when I came to Yale. Uh, I can't even remember not wanting to do that, yeah. which is kind of a strange thing when you think about it for yeah. a kid. Uh, and, uh, and as a result of uh, hearing just an amazing lecture, uh, and my, my dad was a, was a physician, okay. and uh, he insisted that uh, in, in a general way that, you know, I should uh, really at least have a look at, at biology. At the time, physicists weren't well employed, and I don't think he ever thought that I would really <laughs> cut it as a physicist. He may well have been right, by the way. And so, uh, so he suggested I take a, take a course in biology, and I have to say I was completely resistant to the idea because the first thing you're taught as a physicist is that physicists are really smart. Second thing you're taught is that mathematicians are even smarter, okay? Third thing you're taught actually, is that chemists, well, they're not really very smart, but at least they do worthwhile things and they're respectable. They may be dull, okay? But biologists, they are really stupid. So, you know, you are primed as a physics student not to ever expose yourself to biologists on the fear of being contaminated. But anyway, I somehow did, and, uh, and that, that was just a turnaround. And the reason was very simple, <laughs> which is that, uh, that in physics, you know, it's a very well-developed subject, and even if you're an advanced student, you're so far from the research frontier. Mm. It's such a multi-layered subject. Mm. Uh, whereas in biology, just the, there are so many questions. And as much as we learn, it seems like those qu there are more questions. And it's not like in physics, you know, with the string this and the string that and the subatomic this and that. And You know, I had a chance, speaking of meeting the other laureates, yeah. had a chance to talk to Mr. Higgs of the Higgs boson. Wow. It's fantastic. And I still don't know what a <laughs> Higgs boson is, except it's obviously important to somebody. Okay, and I don't mean to make fun of it, yeah. but, you know, it's just even, you know, intelligent people who really, it's just, you can't get away from the math. And so, uh, but, it, and, 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 and it is very abstract. Yeah. And so, but biology is, in molecular biology, it's very concrete. Uh, you touched a little bit earlier in the conversation um, on the question of uh, how it was to be a young scientist <coughs> when you were starting out. Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask you, um, I mean, now you're teaching the future mm -hmm. scientists mm -hmm. and working alongside them. How is it different being a young professional academic scientist mm -hmm. today than it was w earlier in your career? You know, it's very sad, actually. It's massively different, massively different. When I was, uh, it's different in a lot of different ways, okay? When, 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 and I started my lab uh, uh, in 1978, okay? 
um, in that era until, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I would say. Things started changing about then in a, in a meaning, meaningful way. Uh, I felt free, okay? I felt that I, I felt free to study something of fundamental significance because it was fundamentally important and ultimately it was recognized to be so. I've been working on that project from the very beginning, the, the project that led to the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I, I, I couldn't have justified it other than the fact that it was just something that was fundamentally important. It was obviously important because it was true for all of life, but we didn't understand it. I felt free. Uh, I didn't uh, feel under a lot of pressure. Uh, I felt pressured, self-generated pressure to learn more quickly, to discover as much as I could. Um, but I felt I had time uh, to fully develop a, 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 a relatively profound understanding of a subject. Free is the main word. Mm. Today, I think the, the young scientists that I know, uh, they feel confined, okay? And, and I'm, I, this is, I'm putting it into a black or white box. It's sure. not that simple. Yeah. But even at the best universities, the, 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 the young scientists today are confined. First of all, they're confined because they, we, we, uh, we give them enough money, we afford them enough resources, private philanthropy typically, to, to have two or maybe even three years to get a good start. I had five years, so I felt free, they feel confined. Mm -hmm. uh, I started out with my first research grant at about the time that, uh, that, that, you know, I started out with a grant when I started my lab. Probability of getting a grant, if I wrote out an application for anyone, not just me, was about 40 or 50 percent success rate. Oh, we're talking about federal grants, for example, Federal from grants NIH, from the NIH, NSF. National Institute okay. of Health. Chances of getting a grant if you wrote it out was about 40, 50 percent, and that was on the first attempt, okay? Uh, these days, the chances are about 10 percent, okay? Sometimes less, okay? And you get two chances at it. So uh, the new assistant professors come without a grant. It's gotten so difficult that they really are not even in a position to obtain a grant for two years, and by then they're on the edge of running out of money. They're feeling confined. They're mm -hmm. feeling pressured. And the result of that is it forces them to, uh, to do work that's much more incremental and less, less in, in involves less risk, much less risk, okay? The, the result of that societally is that we are already much less competitive uh, globally uh, than we were. And uh, this will continue unless the, unless the, the, the situation changes. And, uh, and, and, and how can it change? Uh, I, I, had, I sensed that question coming. You know, uh, I don't know that I have the only recipe, but the basic issue, uh, of course, the best thing would be to have, as we've always had in medical research, more. But there's a limit to asking for more. And, uh, you know, and uh, I don't think it's about asking for more. I don't think we should be going to Congress saying, we need to double the NIH budget. It would be nice, by the way, to have an increase rather than a decrease, that is true, but a modest single-digit sustainable, continuous <coughs> level of support would be very helpful. But I think that much of the problem that we're experiencing today is of the scientific community's own making. Hmm. It's not that the, I, I personally feel the government on the whole over the last many decades has been there for science in a, in a strong and a sustained way. Yes, over the last several years, we've had issues that have been disruptive, like this, the sequester. Mm -hmm. And yes, uh, the NIH budget has, has, uh, ha has been challenged and so on. Uh, but I still feel that, uh, that, broadly speaking, both of our political parties are deeply supportive of, uh, of sustained biomedical research. I feel that the larger issue 
is how we allocate the funds within our own family budget. And, uh, and that hasn't really been addressed in a serious way. Now, when you say the family budget, are you referring to within the, the universities themselves? Within the NIH. The okay. NIH budget has progressively, over the last decade, gone more and more, been sp more and more of it is being spent on top-down science projects, research projects. More and more of it is being spent on applied science, so-called translational research, mm -hmm. and therefore, since it's a fixed sum, mm -hmm. less and less on fundamental research. And it is probably true, in fact, it's undoubtedly true, that 10 years ago, uh, we were not spending enough on translational research so that the public, and all of us being the public, get uh, uh, ultimately what we uh, should be getting from this basic research, okay? Mm. But the pendulum may have swung a little far Mm -hmm. uh, and to the point where, where, where the, uh, you know, the goose that lays the golden egg isn't laying anymore, which is what mm -hmm. I've been describing. And yeah. we, we require fundamental research. And the other is that much of the research is programmatic. So in other words, in the past, it was so-called investigator research that was primarily what was funded. In other words, uh, a young uh, Jim Rothman or young Randy Sheckman starting their lab has an idea and it's reviewed on the merits of the scientific idea, and it's not put through a filter of what some big guy at the NIH felt was an important program, mm. okay? Remember my health warnings about mm. you shouldn't listen to older people when it comes to, uh, that applies to the people running the NIH too. And you know, it depends on how you tally it. No one knows the exact numbers because the NIH frankly isn't that transparent on the numbers. But uh, I've seen numbers to suggest that as much as half of the research is essentially top down. If you include so-called uh, uh, investigator-initiated applications that are within the rubric of special topics that the NIH has mm -hmm. requested. That's a sea change. Now, uh, as you mentioned, the, the major problem in your view isn't that there's, there's simply too little money and that the government, for example, hasn't been supportive, but that they're allocating it in ways that you might question. I, there is too little money for the end, for the end user, so to speak, the person do, for the researcher. Okay. There is too little money for a research community of the size that we have. Mm -hmm. That is true. Got it. Okay. So okay. Mm -hmm. And part of the and, and we need to restructure in the, in the broadest possible way for having. We, we've been through an exponential phase, broadly speaking. And we're now moving into a steady state. What the government's responsibility is, in my opinion, is to allow steady state growth in a responsible way so that we don't have yo-yos in budgets. Mm -hmm. You can't have projects that go, you can't have government funding that yo-yos up and down every three to five years and have 10 or 20 year projects, mm -hmm. which you need in any of these areas mm -hmm. of research, including translational research. That's the one. But the other responsibilities fall on the NIH itself to, uh, closely scrutinized, preferably with outside, uh, outside uh, an analysts viewers, yeah. and outside views, uh, how they allocate their money among the different, tr uh, different bins to which it could be allocated. Fundamental research, applied research, top down, for which there's some value, and bottom up, just good ideas springing up from young and brilliant scientists. And the third uh, party are universities like Yale. Because as you get to a steady state, we have to change the funding formula to recognize that. We have to uh, keep steady at the wheel. That's the government, mm -hmm. okay? And then we have to look at how we structure ourselves as universities. Because we actually have, broadly speaking, I'm not referring to Yale, mm -hmm. but broadly speaking, probably too many participants in the research process to be sustained by any model of funding. 
within the confines that within the constraints of a flat of, of a growing progressively growing but responsibly growing NIH budget. Mm -hmm. And the universities as a whole have not found have not uh, have not responsibly addressed this. So, you know, we really are challenged. And it's not just fair to point the finger at the government. Mm. The government hasn't done its bit for the last couple of years. That's true. And the NIH, I, I don't believe, has been uh, truly responsible in the way that it's, it's dealt with, uh, dealt the hand of going from exponential growth to, to flat or steady, has not dealt with that as, as responsibly as it should. But we as the universities also have not been proactive or, or sufficiently forthright, in my opinion. Is there a uh, role that uh, philanthropists can play, and <coughs> perhaps the the private sector, the corp, you know, for-profit corporations, in funding science that uh, that maybe they're doing somewhat now, but could be doing more of? And is that a good idea? Well, I mean, of course, there is a major role, Eric, even yeah. now for yeah. philanthropy. In fact. <coughs> um, the major philanthropic organization in the United States is the Howard Hughes Medical mm -hmm. Institution. Right, that is course. the major one focused on biomedical research. And uh, I shudder to think uh, what Americans, America's competitive position in the world would be today had there not been the Howard Hughes Medical Institute over the last 10 years. Now, it's true that only a minority of, uh, of, of biomedical research in the U.S. is paid for by HHMI, as it's abbreviated. Mm -hmm. But actually, the, uh, if not the majority, certainly a very substantial portion of the truly impactful research is paid for by HHMI, an outsized proportion by probably an order of magnitude. Mm. And you have to ask yourself, why is that? Okay? They have a funding formula which is radically different from the NIH. What the NIH funds are individual projects that are reviewed on a forward-looking basis. In other words, I say I have an idea, and I have, here's how I'm going to go about doing it, and some folks on a committee who never meet me personally, or somebody else, I don't mean to personalize yeah, it, sure. um, <clears throat> will say, oh, I think that will work, or I don't think that will work, or it's not worth doing, or whatever. Now, the Howard Hughes takes a different view. They take what you, they look at what you've done for the last five or ten years, and they say, did I like that? Was that impactful? And they don't look too carefully at what you're going to do for the next five or ten years. They look at what you've actually done. Mm. Now, people criticize Howard Hughes. They say, yeah, but you're only investing in people who have already succeeded. Okay, that's fine. So maybe the NIH and the Howard Hughes need to kind of get their act together a little bit. And, for, and the NIH needs to find a way to invest in people who have succeeded, but invest in a different way as if they were just not just out of the gate and then marshal their resources in a particular way, mm -hmm. and they are trying to do that for the younger investigators, but maybe more of that. So there is a huge role for philanthropy, okay, and it is there today. Now, having said that, uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's great for, uh, to have philanthropy to help, uh, but, but phila even philanthropy tends to be focused on curing specific diseases. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very important, and it will continue to be very important. But in the main, uh, I don't see that as the solution to maintaining our competitive edge in technology in the broadest sense, mm -hmm. which has always come and will always come from basic science and basic engineering. On the day uh, that you won the Nobel, uh, I, 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 you were speaking to an audience here at Yale, and you related a little anecdote. I guess you had met with your research group uh, mm -hmm. earlier that morning, mm -hmm. and you said, guys, it's not over yet. <laughs> Uh, meaning, don't slack off. There's more to do. Yeah. What, 
having uh, having done so much already, what do you still want to achieve in science, you personally? Well, you know, there's, there are questions that, uh, you know, a scientist in my position uh, actually, uh, you know, f put this Nobel Prize aside, because to me that's, in, it's sort of an epiphenomenon in your question. Um, it's hard to, to, to develop a, uh, it, it's almost inconceivable to imagine m having an impact in a major way uh, in developing a scientific uh, discovery uh, in a short period of time. So I'm 63 years old. I don't know if, I, I, ca I can think of very few impactful pieces of work that take less than 10 to 20 years. So I don't think I have the runway to do that mm -hmm. all over again as I did. I'd like to think I have the intellect, but I don't think I have mm -hmm. the runway, okay? So what I'm focusing on is uh, trying to try to go deeper in the questions that I've unearthed. Mm. And so, um, you know, what we're trying to understand, uh, we've, we've taken the process of, let's say, vesicle fusion, how the bubbles target and release their cargo for signaling and, and other, mm -hmm. other biological events. And we've now learned how to not just, we haven't just, uh, in the past we discovered how it works at a certain level. Now we want to understand it at the level of atomic detail. So we're in, in, and so that's a, a process that we're uh, very much engaged in. There is a, uh, uh, in the connection of, uh, of, of really finishing off a piece of work, mm -hmm. there's one very major question that is not yet understood appropriately uh, that relates to communication in the brain. Mm -hmm. So when, when, uh, when in the brain, you know, we have these neural networks of neurons that have to talk to each other. And one guy fires an electrical signal and it needs to transmit the electrical signal to the next, uh, next neuron. Uh, in order to enable a, a neural computation to take place. That's ultimately what cognition is about, on a, played out on a large scale. That's called synaptic transmission. And at the end of every, every nerve, there are many little bubbles called synaptic vesicles that store the neurotransmitters. Same idea as what I said before, uh, but a very particular version of it. And, and when the electrical impulse comes to the end of the, the wire, the, the nerve axon, as it's called, uh, the neurotransmitter is released and it passes the signal to the next nerve to which that nerve is wired. Now that, the neurotransmitter has to sit in these little vesicles waiting for the electrical signal. How does it know exactly when to release? It's not how it gets released, that's the general problem. How does it know when to release? If we didn't release our neurotransmitters at the right time and at the right place, our brain would be nothing but a confused fog, okay? Mm -hmm. So timing is everything in the brain, absolutely everything. And uh, my colleague, uh, Tom Sudhoff, with whom mm -hmm. this award was shared, mm -hmm. well, Tom discovered uh, the protein machinery uh, that controls the timing. There are mm -hmm. two very special proteins that he discovered. But actually, we don't yet know how they work in a precise way. So a lot of what I'm doing now is, uh, with other colleagues at Yale is trying to, be, trying to understand uh, almost at an atomic level, and we will succeed over the next five or ten years, to understand exactly how the precise timing in the brain is achieved. Now, my belief is when we understand that, we'll also have the means to understand another level uh, of sophistication, ultimately, of the cognitive process. I can't prove that today, but I believe that that's true. So I do think there are probably important mm -hmm. uh, elements. Uh, I've also, uh, start, I'm also starting a laboratory uh, at uh, University College London. Hmm. Uh, we, we have a program at Yale called the Yale-UCL Collaborative. Okay. Uh, at UCL, they call it, by the way, the UCL-Yale Collaborative. They're probably both correct. And uh, this enables Yale professors to spend some significant time 
uh, in London uh, at University College London to take advantage of what they have to complement what we have and also vice versa. And so I'll, I'm, I'll be working in the uh, Institute of Neurology at UCL, which uh, is uh, really the world leader in the genetics of, uh, of human neurological diseases. And uh, there, my, my clinical colleagues there are very much of the persuasion that there are many uh, common and rare neurological syndromes uh, that are so-called, uh, they call them synaptic disorders, in which the very proteins that we study are likely to be altered in the basis of these diseases. Mm -hmm. And we're just really at the tip of an iceberg in terms of understanding how, uh, what the disease impact is in psychiatry and in neurology mm -hmm. of the discoveries that my colleagues and I have made uh, are. And so that's one, another ambition I have is to try to see that through. And, uh, and that is something I'll be doing in London primarily. And so obviously you'll be spending uh, quite a bit more time there. Yeah, yeah, I will be. Excellent. Yeah. Jim Rothman, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us and uh, sharing your thoughts. Thank and you, we Art. look forward to uh, the results of the work to come. Thank you, Art. Thanks very much to all of you for watching at Yale Live. Please join us again next time.